Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Professor Robert Makamwa from Arizona State University stops in to talk about his lessons learned in building a large research group and also securing external funding to support that group. Lots of good lessons learned, lots of struggles that ultimately led to a success, and hopefully you gain something from it. Well, welcome to Prophet's Error. Uh, we are joined today by Brian Franz, as always, but a very special guest who is not normally with us, uh, Professor Robert Lacamo here from Arizona State University. Robert, thanks Brian. for having me. Yeah, great to have you both. How, how are you both doing today? Great. Good. Yeah, can't complain. It's Friday, <laughs> which is always a good, uh, leads to good moods, I think. Friday in the summer. Yeah, well. Nothing better. Good with well, them, okay, yeah. <laughs> Weather-wise, not good. <laughs> Depends where you are, right? People listening in the north, yeah. they're saying, oh, this is perfect time. Well, I'm really excited, Robert, to have you here. I've gotten to, to meet you over several occasions over the past couple of years here and learn about what you do and how you do uh, what you do at ASU. So there's a number of things that I've been kind of intrigued with in, in following your, your career arc that I'm looking forward to talking about today. Um, I brought you in, I wanted to bring you in in part because I think you are a model of success, but part of why I thought it was good to have you here is the level of transparency and kind of candor you've provided in our discussions to illustrate times in which you had a lot of roadblocks on the way to success. And I thought, well, that's right in line with what we want to talk about here. So maybe for the sake of our listeners, could you give us just kind of a little bit of overview of what are you doing now in your career? What's kind of your interest, your focus right now? And then we'll rewind and talk through how you got there and some of the hurdles you hit. Yeah, six years ago, I started a, a professor position here at Arizona State University. Um, so now I'm a newly tenured associate professor in the School of Arts, Media and Engineering and the School of Electrical, Computer and Energy Engineering. My tenure home is in AME. That's the Arts, Media, Engineering side of thing. But it's a 50-50 split. So I wear both hats equally. And I maintain a research lab, which I call the Meteor Studio. Meteor is an acronym for Mobile Experiential Technology in through embedded optimization research and it's a studio because I'm also in an arts department so it's a lot of fun Um, but we do a lot of engineering research and we also do um, design work as well Um, mostly in immersive uh, spatial computing visual computing um, virtual reality augmented reality mixed reality sorts of things Um, we play with everything from haptics to um, to visual computing systems of how the pixels actually enter into your cameras and then enter into the understanding of where your smartphone or your virtual reality headset is in the world. So then you can do these illusions for mixed reality. Um, we play with different kinds of data, data oriented, um, data visualizations or data driven storytelling as well to help people tell their stories. And so I have nine PhD students, And I maintain a team of roughly 60 um, folks as well, working with those PhD students who are um, who are themselves undergrads or or um, or or master's students to work on these various different projects. Wow. I knew you had a large team. I did not know those were the numbers. That's at least by my standard, by my estimation, (laughs) that's a big team. It keeps me busy. That's for sure. And it keeps the students busy as well. 
Well, so we're, okay, so so we're gonna sort of flip the we're gonna we're gonna go Hollywood movie style where they start with the ending and we'll go we'll get to that then and we'll, we'll work our way backwards because I am curious how you build a team that big and and survive and have a life outside of work. Um, so let's then start talking about when you first got the position. Um, my guess is you probably didn't think in whatever that would have been twenty sixteen or fifteen or whatever it was mm-hmm. probably didn't think you'd have sixty students and nine PhDs. Uh, working for you at that time, or maybe you had that those kind of ambitions. I don't know, uh, but tell us a little about like what what were your plans when you first started? Like what were how what were you trying to do initially? So I was a PhD student at Rice University um, in the school of in the department rather of electrical and computer engineering, and my advisor, Dr. Lin Zhang, uh, ran the Rice Efficient Computing Group, and so we were working on different mobile systems, smartphone systems, and we published in venues like um, ACM Mobisys, top-tier um, stuff, in a top-tier conference in mobile systems, applications, and services. Um, we um, were writing grants, and, and Lynn, actually, my advisor, had the students work with him on writing these grants, especially those of us who are destined for faculty positions. And so we got some tutelage of how to think about the work itself. Um, and even in, in terms of like how to write a grant in a way that um, that um, would sell well to these different reviewing committees, whether that's for papers or for grant writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of iterative process working with the advisor on, on, on pushing towards those kinds of very mm-hmm. lofty ambitions. So when I joined into um, Arizona State University or even when I was on the job market with um, applying for these different professorship jobs, what I was imagining was more of the same, right, is being able to work with students um, on publishing at these top tier journals, at being able to write these grants and successfully win them, um, at being able to support um, a team of students to do um, mobile computing, mobile uh, systems engineering research. Um, and that's that's basically how I imagined things mm-hmm. going was just uh, running a few PhD students and and, 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 and pushing out these kinds of research activities. Um, things changed significantly along the way. Um, part of that is because of this joint position in arts media engineering, um, which allowed me to actually be incentivized to collaborate broadly with other faculty mm-hmm. on topics that are way outside of my own. Um, and as we started building these kind of cross-functional teams, the teams necessarily grew larger as well um, because we needed designers, we needed data scientists and not just the mobile systems engineers who are working in, I was doing operating systems and computer architecture work and I still do. Um, and But we do look for intersections between that and these other areas as well. And so that's naturally how things started to balloon. I mean, did you have any then exposure to, I don't know, management strategies in your grad experience? Because I mean, th- that's a challenge, right? Forming those kind of teams. and well, You had to learn this them... yourself, right? What's that? Bro? You had to learn this yourself. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. it sounds like when you were doing your graduate work, it was much smaller teams, much more focused on yeah. maybe one or two projects. This is you sort of having to be collaborative with other departments on your own. Yeah, that's right, Brian, is that um, when I was a PhD student, my advisor also supported my work by having me work with undergraduates underneath Uh me. Um, Usually it would be two undergraduates at most. Um, 
and maybe there would be another younger graduate student also on these projects as well. Um, and so um, he would typically set things up that way um, to allow us to, 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 to operate and, and move on. But, um, but yeah, uh, that was typically the extent. I feel like this is such a, a challenge for a lot of faculty. I, this is sometimes an analogy that I'll make. I don't know if I've made it on the podcast, but it, it sometimes can feel like doing a PhD is becoming an expert at something almost like I use a, a, a rocket science example. It's like you design a door handle for a rocket ship and you go through and you test it and you research other door handles and best practices and you prototype it and you, you test it under all the worst conditions and, and have all this great da- data on a door handle and defend your dissertation that I have the door handle that's perfect. I've designed it. I can defend why it's good. And then you get a faculty position and they say, great news, you're hired. We need you to get to Mars. And you say, no, 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 all I know is a door handle. And they kind of say, well, you've got six years, you'll figure it out. right? And it feels daunting because it does seem like the, the model to success as a PhD is wildly different from the model to success as a faculty member. So when you talk about these kind of strategies of getting some management experience, even if it's, as you say, two, two undergrads I got to work with or an undergrad, right? Getting some of that exposure as a grad student, I think is such a master class that just helps you so much later. Maybe it helps for the PhD too, but it can really help in these later stages because I just think there's a lot of new faculty that have a challenge. They're brilliant people, but they haven't, they haven't been tasked with doing this before. And sometimes if you, if you can't enable those working for you to succeed, your own success is just going to be kind of stagnant. You know, you just you won't be able to make progress. So that's great that you had that experience. Yeah, running a research lab like ours um, is really almost like running a small startup um, and even a somewhat larger startup these days. Um, you, we have to build culture, right? And then we have to train um, students into that culture as well and then maintain our sets of values of what we are aspiring to do figure out what our value propositions are, um, figure out who the stakeholders of those value propositions are, figure out our revenue streams to support all the activities, our resourcing, um, figure out the ecosystem in which we're playing inside of all the bureaucracies, um, and make it all work um, at the end of the day and make it sustainable and generative. Um, That's very much the same types of things that a small business might have to do. Um, I was reading and... um, listening to some audiobooks on startup culture as well. And that actually ended up helping a lot of thinking about how to value employees in their case um, and how to figure out pathways for their, you know, um, growth within the, the, um, the, the, their companies in their cases. Um, and thinking about how we could do similar things. My brain was just um, rife with activity of thinking, how do we, you know, build in, the students a sense of their own value and where they fit into these um, different um, uh, lab cultures. So when when did this kind of, I'm sorry when did this kind of strategic thinking happen in your career trajectory? Like that's not a year one decision, right? That, yeah, that sure, sounds like a, you'd beat your yeah. way. <laughs> like, that, that seems like that's I didn't the last think about thing I'd be thinking until, about in year one. Yeah. So <laughs> I I honestly I was starting to think about this while I was a PhD student oh, myself. Wow. Um, as I was starting to plan out, you know, what, what it would look like, but it didn't become real until I entered in and, and had some, you know, pitfalls of, of, um, you know, thinking about why aren't the students responding to what I'm telling them to do. Right. Um, 
and in that phrasing already, you can sense where the issue is, right? Why aren't the students responding to what, what I've directed them to do, what I'm telling them to do, um, almost demanding or commanding them to do? It's not what once I realized, or I guess um, I didn't realize for the longest time, for maybe a year, maybe two years, of just um, my expectation of them towards what I thought were these, you know, values of we really need to get this paper out, we need really need to get this finding um, together so that we can get funding, etc. Um, and driving them towards the, um, with horse blinders of, of, of a very specific goal um, was blinding actually, um, and was not having them bought into the culture, not bought into the value of the larger picture, the bigger picture, and where they actually fit into all of it. Um, honestly, I was not thinking of them as human, right? And probably, well, what I do think happened is my brain then, in reflection of why are things not going the way I want them to go, um, all that reading I had done, all that listening I had done about, you know, startup culture, etc., it came back to me of, oh, there's something there, there's some wisdom there in thinking about how to be more of a um, servant leader, right? How to think about leadership, not as driving towards product, but driving towards culture that can generate um, um, people and generate people that will then deliver on that product later uh, and building a healthy culture and really putting people first, um, the human first. Um, and so after coming around to that, um, it led to a lot more patience, but it also led to a lot more um, giving students kind of the ownership of the direction of the project and giving them more of a sense of identity of um, these are where, um, these are who they are becoming, I guess, um, and, and that the projects are, are a path for that as well, that they are growing with the project. Um, and it led to a lot, um, a lot smoother success, I think, from there. I mean, that, that's some real longer term thinking like what, what usually when and steve and i were laughing because you know first year on the tenure track most of us are like okay i need to publish papers i need to get dollars <laughs> there i need to hit these metrics and so the only way that you can think to do it is to just push students be a slave yes. driver go out there and, and that's what i was data, start writing give me a draft i gotta look at it give me it by tuesday and then you go through this whole thing and push 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 and then and I was right there doing exactly that, regardless of everything I had read. Right. I'm not right. saying I'm the wisest guy. I, I was literally in that same exact pitfall as I think every first year, you know, um, student. And I came from Rice University, which was this um, it's an elite private university. And so I had this expectation of the Ph.D. process and the Ph.D. student um, and what they should know and, and would know and it was there's other things there to other lessons to be learned there as well of thinking about each student as very different from one another um and each student um being on a journey and and what their path is and helping them through that it is a lot more fun actually that's a three-letter word i would just throw in there is it's a lot more fun to think of them not as worker drones but actually as human beings and future leaders themselves and all being on that journey um, and figuring out where they want to go and helping them on that path. 
and and I I agree. I feel like though the other thing I would add, like the the paradox or irony to this, is by finding that fun, by finding the thing they want to do, their work output's going to be better than what you could have gotten if you tried to force their their efforts to a thing that they kind of didn't really want to do. Right? If Correct. you get them in that thing now, now they're going to run with it. And so I, um, when I'm at a good version of myself, I really try to do that as well. I still, if I'm being honest, have times where I just like. We just need this. You know, I know this isn't what we want to do. We need this report or we have this data. It needs to turn into this paper. But I try to do that because I, I think that's a great, I mean, it, it's both a more ethical, more pleasant, just humanitarian way to work. But it's also more productive, even from a just output level. It's a wise way to work. But it's risk. I mean, it, it feels risky at the time, I, I would think, because it's like, okay, maybe output is going to suffer in the short term while I kind of set up this new paradigm of how I'm going to now manage my team, but then hopefully in the long term it recovers, right? So I think at the beginning, maybe it feels a little bit risky. It is. It certainly is. And I mean, part of the change, if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, is feeling stability that came with having those first paper Mm -hmm. publications and having successful funding and believing in myself to be able to continually generate uh, and believing in my team to to to, to yeah. continually generate that funding kind of afforded that safety net, that ability to say, "Hey, now we can look farther into the future." And sometimes, I mean, a lot of faculty that I talk to, they come to this realization post tenure, even. Mm-hmm. So it's even the entire assistant professorship is spent inside of that mentality of of driving because they don't. That's all they can afford to do. Mm-hmm. So it comes from somewhat of a sense of privilege of being able to take that risk and see farther. Um, yeah, but that's, you know, that's just a very, my transparent take on that. I'm just curious to get a sense of the chronology of this. So we talked, you know, at the moment, you've got this team of nine PhDs and about 60 undergrads working with you. In that first year, what was what was the your lab or research group size? Like how, how many yeah, did you? Yeah, I had, I had two PhD students. Okay. Um, and I had a few master's students that were working with them. And... Um, most of it didn't work out, I would say, actually, inside of those, that first year. Um, um, and the first PhD student I worked with, actually, I didn't continue working with after that first year. Um, the, the, some of the master's students didn't produce, didn't deliver according to expectation. And then also they also were not, um, did not continue um, with us longer. Um, so there were some rocky starts, actually, um, in, in personnel. I'm curious, maybe not for the specifics of people, but more just general experience in those early years. You had said you had had tried these expectations, set these expectations, and you noticed that they weren't aligning with what you expected. Did you recognize the issue because they told you we have an issue, or did you recognize the issue because you, you know, just saw what they were producing? Like, part of why I'm where I'm going with this is I know with my team, I feel like especially early on, I was more. Um, actively seeking their feedback on me as an advisor how's this how is this going what's working what's not you know i feel like i was a little more um needy in a sense of getting feedback from them did you feel like they recognized that they themselves were not succeeding properly or were they kind of ignorant to that and they thought i'm doing great and you it was it was on you to recognize the the lapse and lack of performance the first indication that I had on the lack of performance was really when they stopped showing up and stopped. Um, and I describe it as hiding. 
um, and and it becomes it's like they they won't they don't report progress, and then they feel like they have to make up more progress in order mm-hmm. to make up for that lost time, and then they feel like they haven't done enough, so then they go back down into their hole, and they never pop up and never touch base again. Um, and so despite my trying to reach out, despite my trying to connect to them, um, there was there was a disconnect and then they fell off. And so that's what I detect that's that was my indication that oh, it's not working out. Um, this isn't and that was again in multiple instances and in multiple forms. And it wasn't with a hundred percent of the students. Some of the students um, I, I had started with or one of the students one of the students I started out with has continued on. Um, and is, is, is due to get a PhD soon. And so like there is definitely success um, inside of some of it, but some of it there was dramatic failure, I would say even. Wow. Um, and it's just a mismatch of expectation um, as well. Um, something I've done since then to try to you know, um, avoid those sorts of issues, that spiral, I think it's a death spiral, honestly, of just feeling like you're not you don't have enough to share and then you go deeper into that well and then you feel like you have to make up more ground anyway death spiral um is to have weekly meetings with the phd students um that there is but but not only that but actually have an expectation of what happens inside of those phd meetings that is more um will allow them to talk through some of their challenges uh, and gives them the space to do so so in our weekly, my one-on-one meetings with my PhD students, we start out with saying, okay, so remind me where you were last week in your, in your work. Um, what did you do since then over the past week? And number three is um, what challenges and, and opportunities um, did you face um, in, this, in this past week towards what we want to do next week? Um, and so those one, two, three um, of where you were, what happened over the last week and what you project to do next um, through and talking through the challenges and opportunities towards the what you want to do next um, really gave them the structure and space to attach back into um, always basically having something to say and always you know being able to stay on journey stay on path um, and um, really it's about making sure they're they're communicating and showing up to the party so I was smiling as you were talking there because I do exactly the same thing in my team meetings. But I, without me saying my answer, I'd like to know yours. Why do you do that? Why do you do a week? Why would you not ask for a semester or a month or this year or some, some bigger picture towards the bigger goal? Like what, Why do you limit it to the week? Yeah, it's a continue. It's, a, it's the, the, the sense of continuity is really important. Um, because otherwise it's very easy for students and and really anybody, not just students, but humans to create unreasonable expectations for what they should have done and feeling like they are farther off path. I have a lot of PhD students who, in fact, I would say the majority never feel they are good enough. Right. Um, and if you have meetings that are once a semester, then it will be a full semester of feeling like they didn't make the mark. Um, if it's on a weekly basis, then at most it's contained, that disappointment in self is contained to a much smaller unit um, and allows us to then bring it back up and say, no, that is okay, you are still on path. It is okay, totally okay to have that smaller unit of being off path, yeah. um, if it even is off path. It, in many cases, it's not. 
um, but it allows to, to us to minimize that. And so that continuity is just super important. Hmm. That makes sense. I feel like you might be a, a better human being than I am because if I answer that question, like your response is basically... What's your response? Yeah. Right. I was going to say, because oh, your boy. response is basically, here's how it's good for the student. Mine is way more selfish. Like I do it because I think if if I ask for what you do last week, what are you doing this week? What challenges do you hit? If I hear a response like, well, you know, still uh, still plugging away at my thesis, uh, looking to make some progress on that, that is already, that's more telling to me this person is lost and they have no idea what they're doing. But if instead they say, I've drafted um, research questions that I think will work for my second paper. Here's the data I want. I don't know the methodology that I'm struggling. Do I do a survey? Do I do an interview? Both are perception. But I, right now, all of a sudden, I can see the depth of thought and where they're going. And selfishly for me, it's more of, just stay hands off. This person's, they're going to figure it out. Like they're driving. There's well, there's no worry on my side. But for the person that comes two weeks in a row or three weeks in a row with uh, still plugging away at the thesis, that's one that, that gives me kind of that, it's much more selfish where I see, okay, this person really needs someone to step in because they don't get it. Um, but I, I should I should have more of the, the open, no, end, you know, it's for a the, the student's interest. It's a balance of both. And um it's uh, it, it makes a lot of sense strategically, um, giving them um, something and uh, to to go off of and and to intervene at the right moments. Like you said, we can detect when somebody is lost. That allows us to have a point of intervention, um, and it allows allows them to also reflect. I think the the what we both landed on independently of this three part you know weekly meeting structure just makes a lot of sense because they are thinking about path right. They are thinking about how. A connects to B connects to C. Um, and in the business world, some people will call that an agile uh, methodology as well as scrum, a scrum um, and, and, and people figuring out exactly what they want to plan to do and then executing on that. Um, so there are a lot of just, I, I think we landed on the same thing for a good reason. It's, it's, these are the things that we need to talk about with our PhD students to keep them productive. I mean, it also helps to, change the mindset. I don't know if both of you have had this, but like I'll sometimes work with super talented undergrad students that are absolute stars in an undergrad paradigm. And they'll have kind of trouble when going into a grad paradigm, because I think often in undergrad, they're solving very well-defined problems. In grad school, often it's you figure, you define the, the parameters of your problem. And so they will come to the faculty member, you know, say, what do you want me to do? I say, I, you know, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't need you as the grad student, right? And so this, what you do last week, this week challenges, it kind of, is, it shows our cards too of saying, this is on you to define, right? This is your journey, as you, as you mentioned, Robert, like this is your journey to carve here. So, so you tell me what's the next step here. Yeah, I think finding the problem, finding the project is actually one of the hardest parts to do as a researcher, totally. right? What is, and, and towards the goals of, doing research and so training them in that i think you're right it's it's a very difficult process training them to read widely into the into their area and then read deeply into a few research papers and read not just into the you know um engineering work that went into it but also the higher level themes of what it actually did to provide research contributions to the body of human knowledge in um in very deep areas um figuring out exactly what it is targeting in and then how did they achieve that? Yeah. Um, getting them to, to understand that that is their goal, right? Is their path is to um, figure out what are those research contributions. Um, it's challenging. 
Uh, what I typically do with my um, students is it's all about research maturity. That's what the PhD process is in, in, our, in our view is there's typically a three paper sequence. Papers, by the way, in our, in our field, usually they're conference papers in mobile computing, mobile systems. And these typically have an acceptance rate of like 20%-ish. Wow. Um, so they're, they're fairly competitive top tier uh, conferences. Um, so typically a PhD sequence involves three papers. And the first paper is usually more under my direction and inspiration of saying, hey, this is an idea that I have. Let's put this together. Let's put the work together and make it happen. The second paper is um, the student and I are both reading together and are, are looking into coming into a problem. Uh, and then we both jointly become inspired by a direction. And the third um, paper is they should be providing the inspiration and insight into what that, what that idea is um, and how to um, pursue the idea and prove out the research contribution. Uh, that is, that's a sequence. And by the time they're able to do that, I feel like they're able to do research independently um, or under inter independent leadership and maybe as a group. But um, I feel like I would be confident that they could lead their own research projects. And that's when they, in my mind, deserve a PhD. Um, that's typically the sequence. It's three, three papers and you staple to get them together and that's a dissertation. Maybe write some, you know, filler material in between the chapters, et cetera, but that's the, their dissertation. Um, I think in the engineering, and certainly in computer engineering and, um, and uh, computer science, electrical engineering, that's the typical model that we go through. Um, and so that's what I do with my students. Hmm. Was it the same way when you were at Rice? Was it the same yeah. three-paper model? very, very much, yeah. So you had that um, knowledge of that system and were able to initiate it with your own students? That's right, yeah. I like that model, actually. I think that's a that's a good way to, to handle it. I, I sort of wish I had structured my thesis that way. Yeah. You know, I didn't, but I probably should have. It's not perfect, right? There is because um, some students, uh, I, well, there's no perfect model, yeah. right? But it's just uh, something to aspire to, I think, in, in our mind. I'd love to talk a little bit then about how you find those students. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I think this is specifically interesting to what you do, Robert. I mean, part of it is, is as you've talked about, you're going to give them some flexibility to fail and learn and autonomy to take ownership of their work. But the other thing that we haven't really talked as much about is what you opened with of saying you have a joint appointment. So mm -hmm. that's an even wider sort of range of students you might want to target. And from knowing who you've got in your group now, it's a pretty broad field of students that I, I know you you work with. So what what makes in an interview first impression before you really know them? What makes a student um, hireable in your eyes early on? Like how do you recruit? I am really really happy with my team. Actually, um, I have a wonderful team. I'm blessed to have them, and I actually think a lot of it is fortune. I'm fortunate to have my team. Um, I don't think it's all been strategy. I don't think it's all been um, recruitment. And I certainly don't think it's all been prestige. Um, I, I do think a lot of it is fortune that I um, found, like happened upon almost the right people. Um, that being said, there is a little bit of, you know, um, opportunity that um, being in this AME and ECEE to, to different, very different departments um, but offers to this the look that we have on the students um, in the external world. Because we have 
again, I'm very blessed to have some wonderful students from some really great institutions, from Peking University, one of the top universities in China, um, from University of Washington, computers, computer science, um, a very high-ranking place, from Brown University. And we have students from Arizona State University. That one's easier. Um, ASU students who came up through the system working as undergrads in my research lab um, and found a place to stay and, and, and wanted to continue on to the PhD. I guess we could section them off into a different strategy as well entirely. Um, but we've had some really, really great students um, from different places. And some of it has been, some of these students said the reason why they came in was that they wanted to work at this intersection of media arts and technology. Um, and maybe they were electrical engineers who wanted to play in the arts space as well. Um, they wanted to play in the augmented reality and virtual reality space as well, or other kind of, they wanted to integrate dance and AI, um, and, and we're thinking in those sorts of ways as well. Um, so there, there, I didn't particularly go out and recruit in these directions, but just the nature of the position had them coming in. <laughs> now, when it comes to your actual question, which is how do I interview the students, I, I usually will have a Zoom meeting with them um, and um, really chat about their interests, right? Um, and honestly, uh, a um, undergraduate student's interests are very, very malleable. So I don't put too much stock into whether the interest exactly aligns with stuff that we've already got going on because we change direction frequently sure. anyway. Sure. And because um, they, their direction is very easily easy to change even as first year, second year PhD students. But what I do really pay attention to is that they do have a, they are thinking about the future for themselves, um, that they are thinking about their development and their growth and how they might change over the years, that they're open to that, right? To being able to change and able to commit to um, hard work, serious work on themselves. Um, that's what I really look for. Um, and previous evidence of that is useful which is to say, like, if they are thinking about themselves in the future and are doing, you know, research projects and are learning through those projects and have things that they're talking about that they've um, done, regardless of whether it's ended in publication or project or, 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 or product, but just that they've, um, you know, contributed substantially to this thinking of, um, of something, uh, then, then that's already good evidence that they would do quite well in, in a PhD program. So that's, that, that's a big part of it. It's just like desire for activity and desire for growth in, in themselves, because I really think those are the, you know, hallmarks of a good PhD student. People who are curious, I'll say that one as well. They, they should be curious generally, um, and curious specifically. So generally and specifically both. Um, but um, curious souls are the ones that do well in PhD programs. So how important is the student's background to what you do? So is it, is it easier to bring in an electrical engineer and give them the arts side or to bring in an arts background and give them the electrical engineering side, right? Or does it not matter? Um, I think both are, you know, difficult, actually, I would say, um, and uh, for different reasons. Um, but I've had, I've had success in both sides as well. It is useful, it is not necessary that their background covers all bases because it doesn't, especially at, when we're talking about these intersections, is you'll be a beginner in somebody else's space 
And actually, it should be good and it should feel good to, and be comfortable to be a beginner in somebody else's space. But what I've found is that it is actually really useful also for the students to have some depth of knowledge and some strengths, inner strengths and outer strengths of um, something that is related to their research. If they have no strength whatsoever, and I've worked with some students on, on some projects um, where they don't have those, those strengths, those, those core competencies that they need, um, it can become difficult because as advisors, we get placed in the very difficult situation of either telling some, somebody that they're way behind mm -hmm. or not and letting them be happy, right? Um, and being put in that very difficult position of just saying, hey, you're lacking that background. You really need to pick that up. Um, and if they're not responding to that, it becomes more negative and negative and negative. Um, it's a very dangerous position to enter into. And so what's good is if they have some strength that you can lean on and you can, you know, balance out that negativity with some, some, something that is going well, something that's really going strong, um, then that, that is um, a model that I like to have. So, so in other words, it's good for the students to have core competencies in something that's relevant, something that's related and a healthy aspiration for growth and dedication and commitment to that growth of covering the rest of the bases in those core competencies. Um, those are the types of students. And, and um, I've recruited students who um, we've shaped that, molded them into that as well. So, Do you have any strategies for finding students that are um, in, that in that process of, of aspiring to something and having some kind of vision uh, that they'll be... Um, resilient to or or able to fail or struggle with something in a way that informs their success and where i'm going with this is um, i've often found my best students are those that can get rejection of some for form and use it to get better um, but the the other which sounds like well we would all do that but we don't right and some i think the other side of things is people will get rejection and they'll they'll explain why they can discredit the rejection or otherwise externalize why it was the situation around them that led to it and i found at least in my estimation i think those students have a lot more trouble um, and so i think that uh, in in what we do so I, I tend to think the most successful ones are the ones that can accept and and um, learn from failure you talked about you want a safe place to fail but i think you still need the personality that can accept failure internally do you have any way of screening for that or kind of predicting if they can handle that you know steven i don't and if you do i would be happy to hear it i'd love to <laughs> what, hear it so but what what we do um is we i find continually that the students are mostly in that second category um, and i feel like my internal psychology starts in that second category of trying to be dismissive Right. Um, and it is through fighting of that and fighting the good fight that we are able to meet success and, and future long term success. And so it's really for me about how do we grow students um, out of um, one mentality and into the other. And it takes time. It honestly really takes time and it takes continued failure. Um, sometimes it takes um them being dismissive of advice that I'm giving them, dis dismissive negative feedback, and we submit the paper, and guess what the reviewers say? They say exactly what I said, and, you know, I will tell them I told you so, you know? I'll be rude, and with a smile on my face, and, you know, they take it well, actually. They're like, yeah, actually, um, 
these th- you're not telling me these things because you hate me. Now I realize that. It's like, yes, good. <laughs> you're getting somewhere. <laughs> Progress. And uh, that, that, is, that is just, you know, we're working with 22-year-olds, yeah. right? I mean, it's just we're working with young, moldable people. And we are ourselves, or I was myself in the early, and probably still am in many ways, a young, moldable person as well. And so you're absolutely right on the money is being open and accepting of the feedback, being able to deal with failure, use it productively, move forward is really important. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a journey that I'm on with my students. And I like to, I enjoy actually the process of putting my students on that journey and shaping them. That's one of the things I still can struggle with. One one of the strategies, if I have the time and ability to do, and they have the time and ability to do, um, is I'll sometimes give uh, prospective students a small assignment. Right? Give me a two-page overview of the literature that's been done on whatever topic. Mm-hmm. Um, they submit it, and I will give feedback like I would if it was that journal paper that you just talked about where you said, we can't submit this because of this, this, and this. This isn't a sentence. This contradicts this. This is a circular logic. Just blunt, here's what I would get. Then I send it back to them. And this is kind of when the real test happens because I see, what do they do with that? And some will say, well, you didn't tell me I had to do this. And you didn't. And it's all why external factors led to it. And yeah. others will be like, ooh, this isn't good. Can I try this again? I think I can do a lot better. And I'm like, you don't need to. I'm just going to take you right now. <laughs> that was what I needed to see. You know? um, but but the, I think you don't always have the time for that. That can be a challenge. Um, I would Yeah, be- and Nor has, you know, I mean, some of it is about whether a student has encountered that before, it's po- very possible that the students who have, who are in that more mature category, um, have had the process before of had the right instruction growing up. And I mean, that becomes a philosophical question of what are we responsible for as advisors? Should we be, be responsible for that part of the process or not? Um, and for me, it's like, well, I can't. It's it's a forced question because I can't recruit um, as 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 uh, deeply as. Um, as I wish I could, and, and uh, meaning I can't run those sorts of questions as deeply as I, I wish I could, and so I'll work with what I'm given, and um, and 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 provide them those experiences to build them up. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess I'd like to shift slightly here, being uh, respectful of our time that we've got, and keep this talk on uh, rejection and dealing with rejection, but maybe localize this a little more to you specifically, Robert. So going through your career, maybe we can talk about some of the uh, rejections you got in terms of uh, proposals and, and sort of how that worked. You talked about when you were a grad student, you had a vision for what your group would eventually be, and maybe it turned into that eventually, but for a while hit some bumps in the road. Be curious about how the vision was impacted by uh, successes and failures as it relates to um, funding it and supporting it through some kind of grants. Yeah, um, there's this uh, meme that is Bart Simpson and saying to Homer Simpson, this is the worst day of my life. And then Homer Simpson pats him on the back and says, no, this is the worst day of your life so far. <laughs> And I remember the first, uh, you know, paper rejection I got as a PhD student, and it was, it was, it was very hard, right? As you put in years, actually, I had put in years of, uh, um, of, of time into this one project, and then it, it got rejected by, you know, some faceless anonymous committee. Um, how dare they, right? Um, and, you know, so it felt really bad. All right, it got accepted eventually, you know. I got my PhD eventually. Okay, fast forward. Um, I wrote an NSF grant to um, the CRII program, Computing Research Initiative 
or computer computing research initiation initiative CRII initiated is in there twice because it's for early stage um, faculty and I submitted that and I got accepted I'm like oh this is easy I can just write these grants and people give me money and then I can do research perfect great um, and then I wrote other proposals um, um, and they got rejected one after the other. Um, it was a string of 13 different rejections from these uh, different um, NSF uh, programs. Some of them, and this was over this in a row years. Yeah, in a row. Oh my god, it's <laughs> demoralizing. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, rough. yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some of them were were I was PI. Some of them they were um, other, others were PIs and. You know, I was looking at the reviews and some of them were very encouraging reviews um, and then some of them, but, but they had these flaws, this, this place or the other place. And, um, and through reading the reviews, um, actually, I, I became actually a, not discouraged, actually. I felt encouraged by the reviews because it seemed like they actually did believe in the work and it's just the credibility of the um, project was uh, needed a little bit more support. Um, and so I used that to propel myself and my team into saying, okay, well, let's build in that support. Let's do the work. Like let's, let's do the, this preliminary work that proves out that these sorts of things are possible. And um, filling in those gaps based on the reviewer's remarks ended up being very successful. And um, I'm now sitting on, um, it looks like two and a half million dollars of NSF funding um, that we're using to propel our projects forward um, after, you know, facing all those rejections had a string of successes uh, in a row. Um, so sometimes it was the same stuff being recycled, but then being iterated on and improved along the way. Um, but um, it, it, was, it, it was its own struggle during those, you know, um, the first three years, I, I would say, of my um, of my professorial career, I just, um, it, it, I just kept hitting that brick wall. Um, and, you know, it, it did feel, you know, demoralizing because it's like, well, are we even going to be able to survive? Right. Mm -hmm. So we started to, um, or I started to worry about these sorts of things. Um, but at the other, on the other hand, um, I, I, ha I had confidence about, you know, um, the work itself and the project itself and the vision that we had and that it would work out. Um, and so that's what kind of propelled it forward and, and made it all work. Um, papers actually was more demoralizing to me is that um, the specific papers that we were writing were getting rejected by um, different review committees. And um, that because those are formative to um, create these preliminary work pieces that we can point to, to say, hey, we have credibility to go after these larger um, projects. Um, not having those works out there was um, felt really um, difficult, I think. Um, I didn't have much that I could go out and talk about with respect to all the work that we were doing because it hadn't been published yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so it felt just very um, difficult to get started. Um, but there were good reasons why things got rejected as well. And the same works got accepted later, um, once we, you know, fixed things up a little bit. Um, but it, it was definitely, you know, um, humbling to say the least and then worrying, wor worrisome. But I think then just like stepping back and 
relying on the team and saying, okay, so so what makes all this worth it? And it's, you know, figuring out the projects themselves and the trajectories um, and relying on that, you know, zooming out basically and saying it's not just about the papers themselves or the money even. Um, there is this other thing that if we believe is so valuable, others will see that value as well. But we just need to be farther along in the journey for them to be along for the ride. Hmm. And that came out to be... Um, the way to go for us um, and continues to be the way to go for us. We still get things rejected and um, from in both paper and grant form. And it's really just about, okay, do we actually believe in um, this vision and how do we spell out this value and the, the research value that this provides to either the funding source or the, um, or the, um, the paper. And then what is the credibility for, for attaining that value? Um, the better we spell that out, the better off we are. So that raises a good a good question. So was, was there any idea, whether it be a paper or a grant, that you stopped believing in and just gave up on and just cut your losses and just said, okay, this is not this is a third time, fourth time it's gotten rejected. You know, forget it. Like it, I thought I believed in it, but maybe pieces of it are good and I, I can salvage that. But the core idea is flawed, and I'm just gonna cut it loose. Yeah, and actually, the more difficult thing is not that the core idea was flawed, but that we didn't have a way for ourselves to actually prove out that um, that core idea. In fact, this is what made it so difficult, is that from a theoretical basis, I was absolutely sure, absolutely certain this would be um, a really viable project direction. Um, and um, really writing the PhD student hard on, you know, trying to get the results to show the, the thing that we wanted to show. And um, this was very much um, something that was just difficult to do because it was locked away on the, the pieces that we needed to do this puzzle. The, the image sensor community is very tightly locked um, in terms of the, of the industry. They don't allow other people into their their models or into their their operations and so it's very vendor locked and so we weren't able to actually access the things we needed to access to do the work and so eventually we just had to give up on that direction i submitted that one to the nsf three times kept getting um low competitive um kept getting middling reviews some some panelists liked it and really saw the future in in terms of the theoretical directions and then others were like, you, you have no ability to do this sort of thing. Um, and um, we don't believe in, you know, the model that the simulation driven model, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so eventually I gave up on it because I felt our time could be better used elsewhere. We could de deliver better impact elsewhere. Um, fast forward to the future, had some, you know, conversations with our industry partners about this project and that project direction. And they're like, actually, this is really, really important and real stuff that um, we need somebody to do this sort of research. Um, but that ship had already sailed for us. So, um, yeah, you know, NSF panels are somewhat random. Not all, and, and But I mean, also, they were right. It's like it would be hard to actually do the, the research and to prove th things out um, without access to those um, very detailed, you know, in the weeds things that are locked into just those vendors so were you i mean you seem like you're you're pretty good at accepting this rejection to make constructive changes to what you do if i'm being honest i'm still not 
right? Like I've, d- I've done better now than when I started, but I still get rejected and I'm still a, a poor sport when I get rejected. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I realize the value in it and that's why we're doing this podcast, but I still have enough of whether it be an ego or imposter syndrome that feels called out or whatever, where I still just, I, I don't look, I don't do well with it. On the day you get a rejection, do you right now, are you able to look immediately at it in the kind of the tone you're presenting now of just how it's um, helpful? And if so, how, how did you get to that point? Like, are there strategies you employed to just get out of your own way and be able to take that feedback? Because I selfishly would still feel like I could use that. These days, yes. Three years ago, no. Absolutely not three years ago. Um, three years ago, I was like distraught every time. Um, these days, I actually don't mind that much because we've got enough going on we've got a lot of really good things going on and maybe that's what it is it's just the percentage of you know what's going on versus one paper is actually not the big of a deal or even one proposal for that matter um and so it's it's we've got enough activity to sustain us we have other you know i'll call them bigger fish to fry and that's that's certainly part of it so so i'm i'm telling you i'm not that wise right i'm not that you know centered of human it's just that there's less that is less of a proportion of what's going on. Yeah. And so a lot of my energy is actually directed towards um, helping my students not feel so distraught about it and seeing the bigger picture, etc. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's, a, that's something. Okay, so I also serve on the uh, review committees for um, our conference papers in, in my area, and I sit on NSF panels, etc., and I learned a lot from those, sitting on those and watching those discussions happen, et cetera. So there, there's like good reasons why a good work will get rejected mm-hmm. and need more time. And sharing those stories with the PhD students without specifics, because you're not allowed to, right? But mm-hmm. telling them that these sorts of things happen behind the scenes gives them a little bit of a, you know, understanding. Um, and it's a limited assurance, of course, that there is logic to the process, but there is something there. And show, having them understand the review process helps with with, with that. Um, but, okay, but where I wanted to go here is I was on a review committee where my paper was actually um, being reviewed by that committee. And I um, have to step out of the room, of course, um, when the paper is getting reviewed and they're discussing the paper, I come back in and I find that the paper has been rejected, Oof. right? And that, and I, this was in my early years, I had, I didn't have any papers yet. And I was, you know, pinning a lot of hopes on this. And I was really distraught. And, um, and my advisor was also on this review committee, my PhD advisor, and he, he told me, you know, you can feel however you feel about it, but make sure your students don't see it. Hmm. He said, make sure that you shield your students from your own disappointment. Hmm. Um, you need to protect the student's psyche. And he was absolutely right. Um, And I'm glad he caught me before I sent any email out or anything like that. He's like, make sure you protect, you know, your students from the the disappointment that you're feeling. Um, And, and, you know, you know, you're part of this process now in the review committee, how random some of these decisions are. Mm -hmm. And then how, you know, there is there are bigger picture things that the authors don't see that you could see um, as a reviewer. And so something similar may or may not have happened with your paper. Just, you know play it out but one thing's for sure don't don't let your students you know um see this side of um you know being distraught because otherwise you know i mean there's an argument to be made that we should show our students that we're human etc and yes we should absolutely but on the other hand um they they need to understand that 
the, the ways of the world um, that our human reactions are not logical either um, and that there needs to be some sanity brought back in and some 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 footing some solid footing so. yeah because it's almost like where we started one of the first things you said in this was you you wanted to have a group where you introduced a safe place to fail and if you the advisor the overseer of this group make <laughs> yeah. it so this is unsafe to fail you right, just exactly. violated your core philosophy there so, correct yeah yeah, yeah. This is great. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I really enjoy hearing kind of the anecdotes that you've, you've presented, Robert. Before we dive into our fun sort of lightning round, I'd love to just ask one sort of general question that you can take wherever you like, which is to say, if you were able to go back and give yourself advice, you know, year one or whatever, knowing what you know now, like what, what kind of advice would you have offered to yourself when starting a faculty position? Be patient, but be perceptive also. Um, and that includes being perceptive of the what the review panels, and not just the review panels, but the, the research community is um, saying or thinking about um, your work and others' work. So be very perceptive about that. Be perceptive of the students' wants and needs, and be patient and understand that they are growing human beings as well and are um, very impressionable as well. Um, understand that every student is very different from each other. Um, every student um, has their own um, really great things about them and also blind spots um, and helping students understand who they are in their journey is what it's really all about. Um, but being patient and um, trusting in yourself and your process, trusting in your, your um, you know, trusting your ideas enough uh, to, to actually give them um, take take the risks that you need in order to push forward. I think it's all played out. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what uh, I would give to myself. That's great. I think it's great, great feedback. Um, so we'd like to shift, you know, I like to sort of joke, we say we got to meet, you know, Dr. Lakama, we want to meet Robert, just you, you the human now. Sure. So we've got some oh, sort of fun, fun questions for you here. So Brian, you want to alternate here? Maybe we can go back and forth. You can start off if you yeah, like. Yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. Okay, so we talked about, or you're rather, you talked about a lot of failures that you had on, on your tenure track, and some of them were, were big, and they sort of developed over time. Um, but the reality is that we encounter failures every day, kind of on smaller levels. So uh, maybe you can share one of those. What was a micro-failure? All right. So just a small thing, doesn't have nothing grandiose that you experienced within the last week that you can share with us. Yeah, probably a, a, um, screwing my head on backwards, literally in this virtual reality avatar was really um, <laughs> freaky, um, but uh, just uh, hooked up a coordinate system backwards. And so so our heads were like spun, spun around. Uh, that was a micro failure. Um, uh, we quickly figured out what was going wrong, but uh, not before we had put on the headset and completely disoriented ourselves. Everyone was nauseous for the, the hour that followed. <laughs> okay, next Good. one that we've got. Complete the sentence. When I'm not working, there's nothing I would rather be doing than blank. Playing video games. Um, playing video games. Nice. What's your game of choice? I have many. So I've been, okay, guilt, very guilty pleasures. Uh, League of Legends Wild Rift, which is a mobile version of League of Legends because the games are much shorter actually is the real reason even though the controls are less good than the, the desktop version but it's shorter games nice we need to geek out over video games at some point because I, mm -hmm. I share that I play that everything passion. I play everything under the sun 
All right, Brian, go ahead. All right, uh, third question. So if you had a time machine and could go either forward or backward in time anywhere for two hours, when and where would you go? Oh, I want to say invest in Bitcoin, but you oh. know. <laughs> and get out in time, I guess. <laughs> get out. Yeah, right. Um, the, the, um, let's see. Good question. I, I don't know. Uh, well, oh, I don't know. There's so many things, right? Um, let's just say I would go back to, to my former self and, you know, just say it's going to be okay. Right. <laughs> um, say it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. I also... This this is always the paradox of these time machine questions. But right. I, there's a part of me that wonders, like, if you do that, and that's a meaningful conversation for your younger self, do you no longer sweat the small stuff, and it's no longer fine because oh no, the, the person who <laughs> right. stressed and you know what I Good mean. Good point. You didn't Good make point. all those mistakes, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Only one way to find out. Don't go pulling on threads, it. man. What's your favorite part of your career that you can't list on the CV? Favorite part of my career that I can't list on my CV. Um, hmm, good question. I don't know. It'd probably be something about, like, how I really like my team. And um, that, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I really like my team. I, I set them up in this, like, hierarchical structures that I try to figure out these light touch ways to operate with them. But just everything about the structure and the way of working that we have is not something that I would list on a CV. Um, but it's just like, um, I really like our ways of working and we've evolved too. And, um, I've learned a lot from, you know, watching other groups and interactions and applying a healthy dose of design thinking actually, which I wouldn't have thought to do in the early years, but it's, it's all just been really interesting. Yeah. That's great. Cool. Well, Robert, thanks so much for being here. It's been such a joy to chat with you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you all for listening. Uh, We appreciate you as always tuning in. We will catch you on the next episode of Prophet Sarah.